Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Today's episode is sponsored by Lifeway Kiefer. Did you know that Lifeway has a line of kefir drinks called Protein Kefir? With 20 grams of protein and a one-to-one carb-to-protein ratio, these Lifeway Kefir drinks are a filling post-workout or on-the-go snack that promotes muscle recovery. They come in four delicious flavors, vanilla, mixed berry, banana, and salted caramel. You can find Lifeway Kefir in the dairy aisle at your local grocery store, or you can find them on their website. And if you go to lifewaykeeper.com slash courtjunkie, you can get a dollar off coupon for your next purchase. That's lifewaykefir.com slash courtjunkie. Hi, everyone. This is Jillian, and you are listening to episode 23 of the Court Junkie podcast. Today's episode is one that I've been working on for quite some time that I'm excited to share with you. But before we get started, I just want to say a quick thank you to all of you for your support. Thank you for subscribing, leaving me reviews, sharing with your friends, and donating to this podcast. As a reminder, you can discuss this case or any others with your fellow Court Junkies in our discussion group on Facebook. Go to courtjunkie.com slash Facebook to join, or you can find me on Twitter at courtjunkiepod, on Instagram at courtjunkie, or you can email me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. Now, on to the show. Today's episode is a complex one full of twists and turns and accusations of corruption that seem almost impossible to believe. And it's a case that you've likely heard of before. And if you haven't, just know that most of this story has been covered by 48 Hours, Dateline, MTV, and there was even a phenomenal documentary on the case called Dream Killer by Andrew Jenks, a definite recommendation. This is the story of the murder of Kent Heitholt, and an investigation that seemingly went terribly wrong. The main parts of the story go a little something like this. In 2001, two 17-year-old guys, Ryan Ferguson and Charles Erickson, were out underage partying at a club one night in Columbia, Missouri. And meanwhile, just down the street from them, a sports editor named Kent Heitholt was just leaving work after a late night when he was brutally murdered in the parking lot next to his car. Kent's murder would go unsolved for more than two years, and the two 17-year-olds would go on with their lives. Ryan was taking college classes at school in Kansas City, and Charlie was also taking classes at a nearby community college and working. After seeing a newspaper article about the still unsolved murder on the two-year anniversary, Charlie started to become paranoid that he and Ryan were the murderers. He had blacked out that night after a long night of drinking and doing drugs 
and he couldn't for the life of him remember what had happened after he and Ryan had left the club. He started telling people about his fears, and pretty soon, police had Charlie in custody. After an intense interrogation, Charlie tells police that he and Ryan were the murderers. He cuts a deal, agreeing to 25 years behind bars in exchange for his testimony against Ryan. Ryan is found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in prison. But meanwhile, the case falls apart. Witnesses recant their statements and claim that they were pressured by the police and by the prosecutor to say things that weren't true. And an appeals court rules that the prosecution withheld evidence from the defense. Ryan spends 10 years in prison until he's finally released, and prosecutors decide they won't retry him. Ryan then goes on to become an advocate against wrongful convictions, even hosting his own show on MTV about it, called Unlocking the Truth. But this case is far from over, because Charlie is still in prison, and the case of who murdered Kent Heitholt is still an active investigation, according to the Columbia Police Department. Whenever I heard about this story in the past, whether on Dateline, 48 Hours, or in Dreamkiller, the story has always been told from Ryan's perspective. But I couldn't help but wonder about Charlie and what he has to say about what really happened that night and why he decided to testify against Ryan, if they're really innocent. So I reached out to Charlie's mom, who then put me in touch with Charlie himself. This is a free call from... Charles Erickson. An offender at the Northeast Correctional Center. And so over the last couple months, I've been talking to Charlie to get his side of the story and to talk about where his case is at now. Since Ryan has been exonerated, will he too be released soon? I remember the day that Ryan was released. I had followed the case for a long time and found myself unusually excited that this guy I had never met was going to be released from prison. It was November 12, 2013, and Ryan, who was now 29 years old, walked out of the Jefferson City Correctional Center a free man after having spent almost 10 years in prison for a murder that he has always maintained that he didn't commit. A press conference was held immediately after his release, where Ryan famously held up a note that his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, had slipped to him after finding out that he would, in fact, be released. The note read, it's over. So when I finally saw Kathleen and I couldn't talk to her, I was just asking her, like, what's going on? You know, I was asking her if we got bail and she just held this up. And uh, this is this is how I knew what was going on. Ryan was surrounded by family, friends, and reporters who were waiting to ask him what the first thing he was going to do was now that he was out of prison. I asked Charlie how he felt when he heard about Ryan's release. Uh, I was just I was just happy, you know. I was I was happy that he uh, was free and able to be with his family. And uh, I, I we don't get along. We're not friends, and we're never going to be friends. And so. It might be kind of selfish for me to say that I, I, the first thing that came to mind was I no longer have it on my conscience that I have somebody, another human being, in prison based on my lies. 
And uh, so that was probably the first thing, you know. And I thought that that would help with a lot of my anxiety problems and things like that, and it really hasn't. But um, I thought that it would. I don't have to worry about treading somebody else's life or mine and, and justifying it to myself. And that made time hard for me. Because, like, okay, I could get out in, in what was 12 years and nine months, and he's, he's got to do 40 years. And it was really hard knowing that, that I had to, like, I had to, like, live up to my own expectations. You know what I mean? Like, I had to, I had to set, like, really high standards to justify trading his life for mine. According to Charlie, he and Ryan haven't spoken in years. And although there doesn't seem to be any real hard feelings between the two, the situation they found themselves in is a bit tricky. But as you know from listening to this podcast and many others, things aren't always black and white. And sometimes things aren't always what they seem. But before we get into all of that, let's go back to the very beginning, back to when this case first started. It was Halloween night in 2001 in Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, the state's fourth most populous city, was your typical college party town, home to thousands of college students. Downtown Columbia is approximately one square mile, surrounded by the University of Missouri to the south, Stevens College to the east, and Columbia College to the north. So on this night, Columbia Tribune sports editor Kent Heitholtz was working late at the Columbia Daily Tribune, located in downtown Columbia. He turned his computer off at 2.08 a.m. and then headed out to his car, parked in the newspaper parking lot. A part-time sports writer, a man we'll call M. Boyd, says he spoke to Kent in the parking lot while Kent was by his car. Boyd is the last known person to have seen Kent alive. Because something happened in the minutes after Boyd says he left Kent, Kent was brutally beaten and killed, left for dead right next to his car. At 2.26 a.m., two Tribune janitors called 911 to report an assault in the parking lot. 911, what is your emergency? Um, we need someone here at the Columbia Daily Tribune. What's going on? I'm, I'm not sure. I was just told to call 911. There's somebody hurt outside. Is there anybody who can tell me what's going on there? Here. We're at the main building of the Tribune. And what's going on? In the parking lot, the sports editor, Kent, laying on the ground. Pool of blood. Looks like he'd been shot or something. Okay, he's on the parking lot behind the Tribune on the KFC side? Yes, yes. Who did you see in the area? I saw two guys in the area. Were they white or black? White. I'd say 1920. What were they wearing? I, I don't know this gal. She saw them. She walked out to okay. smoke a cigarette, saw them duck down behind the car. Okay. I looked out and saw them, and I said, what's going on? I knew it was Kent's car, and I said, Kent, and they didn't look up. Nobody did anything. Somebody's been hurt, man. Okay, so you saw them duck down behind his car? Yes. Okay, and then where did they go after that? I don't know, up, up towards the new building, uh, towards 4th Street. I guess that's 4th. So... Just to make sure, though, he's down on the parking lot. Yes. And then all on these guys. I don't think, because, okay. well, they, they were close to six feet uh, thin. One of them had blonde hair, really, really short blonde hair. Did they either one of them have hats or caps? They were headed towards 4th Street, so would that would have been east or? I'd say southeast, but I don't know that for sure because they took off, you know, and they went up that alleyway towards 4th. 
All right. We've got officers on the way over there right now. All right. We'll be out there. Okay. Thank you. Kent sustained multiple injuries from being hit in the head 11 times, and the cause of death was determined to be asphyxia, caused by strangulation. There was a mark on his neck that matched his own belt buckle, which was found on the ground nearby, along with parts of his belt. Investigators did find forensic evidence at the scene, fingerprints from both on and inside Kent's car, bloody footwear impressions, DNA, and even a hair found in Kent's hand. Kent Heitholt was 48 years old when he died. He graduated from the University of Missouri School of Journalism in Columbia in 1975, and he married his wife, Deborah, in 1981. They had two children, a son and a daughter. By all accounts, Kent was a kind, loving man. He was an animal lover, and was reportedly known for keeping cat food in his car so he could feed a stray cat that lived by the newspaper offices. So who could have wanted to murder this kind man, and why? A little earlier in the night, 17-year-old Charlie Erickson was at a Halloween party, dressed up like a 70s guy. He was drinking, getting high, and snorting Adderall. At some point in the night, the cops came and broke up the underage party after a neighbor had called them, complaining that they were being too loud. Charlie got out of there, and as he was walking down the street, Ryan saw him from his car and picked him up. Charlie and Ryan were both juniors in high school. Although they didn't hang out all the time, they knew each other from school, shared a lot of the same friends, and would hang out together at parties. Charlie admittedly already had a few minor run-ins with the law. He had just gotten off probation for a marijuana charge, and he told me he was big into drinking on the weekends, doing cocaine, and smoking marijuana. He was also addicted to Adderall. But aside from his hard-partying lifestyle, Charlie did pretty well in school, even earning a partial college scholarship. After Ryan picked him up, he told Charlie that his sister could get them into a club in downtown Columbia called By George, so they decided to go. Charlie says he drank even more there. He says he remembers wanting to go home and asking Ryan to take him home, but that Ryan wasn't ready to go yet. And from there, Charlie doesn't remember anything else about that night until he woke up the next morning in his own bed, nothing out of place. Despite the forensic evidence at the scene of Ken's murder, the case went unsolved for over two years. Police received numerous tips pointing to different suspects, but nothing ever panned out. They would eliminate potential suspects by a DNA comparison with the hair found in Ken's hand, and so far, no match. The case was widely reported on in the media, too, along with certain details of the murder, including Kent's injuries and the two white males that the janitors had reportedly seen at the scene. A sketch artist had worked with one of the janitors, and a sketch of one of the guys she had gotten a good look at was released to the public, but nothing. And then one day, in November 2003, on the two-year anniversary of Kent's murder, Charlie saw a newspaper article about it. It included the composite sketch, 
and he thought to himself that it kind of looked like him. He started thinking that maybe he and Ryan had been involved all those years ago. You see, Charlie had a habit of getting so drunk that he would black out and not be able to remember much after a night of drinking. And he knew that he didn't remember much from that Halloween night. To sort of put it in the context, like I was getting to the point to where like I, I would like fear blacking out because like I'd wake up in the morning and couldn't remember and knew that I, would be, I had been an asshole. And so I lost a lot of friends over that. And that sort of like led up to uh, me worrying about whether I had committed this murder. Like I would steal stuff from my friends like, and not even remember it. Like, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have it, and I'd have to be like, this isn't mine, I have to give this back, and so that'd be kind of embarrassing. But Charlie said that by 2003, he was trying to get his life on track. He had graduated and was trying to move out of his parents' house and get his own place. He said he realized that he couldn't go out and party all the time and keep blacking out like that. But the newspaper article had him questioning everything. I read a newspaper article in uh, on like October 31st, 2001, about this man who had been murdered this night that I was at a club with Ryan down in downtown Columbia. And uh, I saw that the person they were looking for looked like me and looked like Ryan. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that he'd been killed a couple blocks from where we were partying. And I thought that, that was it was sort of like one of those small world things. I'd mentioned that to Ryan before also. Um, I'd said, man, that's crazy, you know, that that guy got killed a couple blocks from where we were partying. That could have been us that got killed. You know, it was just, I'd never really known anybody that died. Um, you know, I've, you know, people that have passed away, I've, no, I've never, I never really knew anybody that had been murdered. And uh, Ryan sort of just, you know, he didn't really think that it was significant. And uh, this was like right after it happened. And then two years later, I read about it. And then I start thinking about this night that I'd been at this club with Ryan. And I was began to, you know, realize that I couldn't remember going home. Uh, I couldn't remember leaving the club. And then I start, you know, thinking about, you know, what I thought might have been a memory of seeing this guy Dallas Mallory with a couple girls I knew in this car. And uh, I didn't, I didn't really know, you know, where I, where that had happened. I remembered I'd, I'd seen him the night uh, that we were at this club when this man got killed. I was at a party that got broken up by the police. And Dallas Mallory was there, and he was dressed like a cop. And I began to sort of, I don't know if this, you know, if it was anxiety plus, you know, substance abuse, uh, when I'm trying to remember this and, you know, when these things happen. But I began to worry that I'd seen Dallas Mallory downtown on the night this man got murdered when I was with Ryan at this club on Halloween of 2001. And I, you know, I realized I couldn't remember going home, and I thought I might have been running from the cops uh, when I tried to get in this guy's car. Charlie said he had this image in his head of seeing his friend Dallas Mallory and of trying to get into his car because he was running from the cops. And in hindsight, this now sort of makes sense to him, because earlier that night, when the cops had broken up that party he was at, as he was fleeing, he had tried getting into Dallas Mallory's car. But hindsight is, of course, 2020, and although Charlie now thinks that this may have been the reason for his flashback, at the time he saw this newspaper article, he was wondering if he was having a memory of something more sinister. It bothered him, 
but he left it alone until he saw Ryan at a New Year's Eve party a couple months later and decided to talk to him about it. He said he saw a girl following Ryan around that night, and she was crying, and Charlie realized that Ryan was planning on moving to Kansas City, and so he figured it might be the last time he would see him for a while. He said he did cocaine that night, which heightened his sense that he needed to talk to Ryan about it. He said Ryan told him that they had nothing to do with it and laughed off his fears, which didn't make Charlie feel much better. The two got into an argument over it that night, with Charlie storming out of the party. But he decided that there was nothing really more that he could do, no one he could ask. But then, word started spreading about how Charlie had asked Ryan if they were involved. Charlie said people at his school started talking about it, and he says he thought that meant that Ryan was possibly confessing to people, furthering his thought that maybe they did do it. He talked to a friend about it, and that friend told someone else, and that someone else called Crime Stoppers to report it. I sort of like, I still didn't know, but Ryan, it's, he'd been insistent, you know, at the end, and, you know, there, I figured there was nobody else I could really ask, and I didn't remember hurting anybody. I didn't remember robbing anybody or killing anybody. I didn't remember being in the area. And so I was planning on just leaving it alone. The problem was that then, like, girls at my college started saying I was a murderer, and the cops started looking at me in a way that was obvious to me, um, you know, even at my college. And uh, so then I'm like, okay. I, you know, and I, I don't even know if it was consciously done, but, like, I, I knew that I'd asked Ryan. And then the cops started looking at me, and I had people in my college saying I was a murderer. And so I basically thought that Ryan was going around telling people that I killed this guy. And the guy, the man, he was beaten to death, and he was strangled to death. And, you know, logically, only one person could have strangled him. And so I think sort of out of fear or out of instinct, I said something to one of my friends, and I said, listen, you know, uh, I might have done this. I don't know. You know, I don't think I killed anybody. If it did happen, it might have happened like this. And uh, then my friend said something to somebody else, and then the cops got called, and they called me in there. At about 9 a.m. on March 10th, 2004, Charlie was taken into custody as he was on his way to class. He was taken to the Columbia Police Department, where they interrogated him about Kent's murder. Charlie repeatedly tells them that he has no memory, calling his memories foggy and dreamlike, and he says that he had read about the murder in numerous newspaper articles and that he was going off of assumptions. Charlie consistently gives inaccurate information. In this clip from his interrogation, Charlie says he thinks that he may have stolen Kent's wallet, but Kent's wallet wasn't taken. It was found on the seat inside his car. Was there anything taken from the guy that we will know where it's at or we'll be able to find? I think his dad found a wallet. Ryan's dad found a wallet? Yeah, but I don't know. Okay, not for certain on that? No. When asked what had been used to strangle him, Charlie says maybe a shirt or a bungee cord, but the officer corrects him and tells him that Kent was actually strangled with his own belt, which Charlie sounds surprised to hear. Let's go back to when you were talking about how you saw Ryan strangle this guy. Now, we know what the guy got strangled with. That's kind of the thing I've been holding back from you, uh-huh. all right? 
Is it possible that you know what he was struggling with and just didn't want to tell me? Because I, I know. I don't know. Like, I think it was a shirt or something. Or yeah, well, I know it wasn't a shirt. Like, uh, maybe a bungee cord or I don't something from his car. I don't okay. see why he'd have a rope in his car. Well, we know for a fact that his belt was ripped off of his pants and he was struggling with his belt. Really? Yeah. Do you see a belt in Ryan's hand? Something look like a rope, maybe, or a bungee cord? I don't know. Okay. You didn't put anything in your hand, then? No. Okay. I mean, I don't remember that at all. Okay. Charlie also tells the officers that he hit Kent once and then turned around and vomited. But Kent was actually hit multiple times, 11 times in fact, and no vomit was ever found at the crime scene. It's not a matter of flipping out and I don't know what's going on. We know you know what's going on. Maybe you forgot some of it, but you didn't forget all that you're telling me. Number one, I just went and looked at this guy's crime scene photographs, but hopefully for the last time until I ever have to look at him again multiple, multiple, multiple contusions, hits, and strikes on this guy's head. There is no way in hell that you hit this guy once, turn and got sick. If you only hit him once, turn away, and got sick, you had to hand the thing off to Ryan because this guy's got head wounds all over his head. We're talking minimum 15 strikes. I must have done it, though. I mean, I don't okay. know either that or I stopped and he did. I don't know. Did you ever drop the pipe? Probably. Did you hand it off to Ryan? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. So when you say that you must have flipped out, then maybe you flipped out and hit this guy more than once. Yeah. Because there's no way that this guy got hit with once. And I'm not, I'm not barking at you. I'm just telling you the truth because I saw a picture of It's just, I don't, I don't. You got the crime stuff? I know. I mean, I know. I mean, I, that's okay. fine. And I, I know when I told you that. Already. Okay. I understand. But I'm just reminding you where we were at. Yeah. I, I don't. Because what's going to happen, eventually, I'm sure the Crime Stopper will come forward now that they know that all this is coming to a head. That's fine. And I got to impress this upon you one more time. And, and this is the last time I'm going to tell you this, Chuck, okay? Yeah, I know. Ryan's going to talk. Don't let Ryan tell a story for you. I don't know what else to do because I can't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's going to put it on me. Like, I, I don't really Probably. Care. I don't care. Okay. I mean, I must have just... you, you know you're involved and you're ready to take that hit, basically. Yes. Okay. In this next clip, the officer is telling Charlie that he better come clean or else Ryan is going to turn on him. He tries to fill in some of the blanks for him, but Charlie doesn't seem to remember, saying that he could just be fabricating all of it, that he doesn't know. He even brings up the newspaper article he read. Here comes the importance of our conversation, and that is to go back from the very beginning to the point that that uh, it was even merely suggested that you guys leave. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't even, it's just so foggy. Like, I could just be sitting here fabricating all of it and not know. Like, I don't know. I don't. Well, now, let me go back one step further. You don't know exactly who brought it up initially. Yeah, uh, I mean, I because It's just, it's, I just. Because now... Now, like Detective Short told you, Ryan, and, and I don't think you and I have even gone there, um, there's specifics about this whole thing that you provided that there was no way for anyone, including yourself, to even know. Bottom line, there would, would be no way um, if you hadn't have been involved and been uh, there. So my angle to you is I need to know as much information about what Ryan said to you that's, and what Ryan the, did. That's the best I can tell you. Like, I don't... 
Okay, well, let's start. You start. You, you were at the club, right? And my understanding is, and I, I'm just going to try to uh, briefly explain to you uh, what, what my understanding is, is, is that uh, you guys needed money. I, this is, this is, all right, this is after reading the newspaper article in October. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what I put together with, I mean, I don't know if I'm just flipping out or whatever, but I mean, this is kind of what I put together with what could have happened. We, I remember we were at the club. We ran out of money, like he'd been asking his sister to borrow money, and then from there on, I'm just kind of presuming what happened. I'm making presumptions based on what I read in the newspaper. Well, you're making accurate presumptions that, like I said, that you would only know if you were there. Like what? What the the lady, the cleaning lady? That's one. That was in the newspaper. Well, no, about what was specifically said she to that to get lady. Out? I mean... No, no, you explained... I'm not going I mean, to go saying, like, I wouldn't be here if mm-hmm. I didn't feel guilty about it. But it's just, I don't... I can't recollect. And it's just a trip for me to mm-hmm. have to sit here and try to look at something that happened that I read about and try to base well, what I, mean, I remember off of that. You know, it's, let, it's let's, a mindfuck. Let, let's, let's just stop right here. Okay? Now, <clears throat> one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to sit here and listen to this kind of gibberish, okay? That's not, I'm going to waste my time doing it. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Wait, now listen, it's my, I'm going to start talking, and you're going to start listening, okay? All right. I'm going to be point blank with you, pal. Right now, your hind end is the one that's hanging over the edge, and Ryan could care less about it. Okay. Okay? Do you understand me? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, you better start thinking very clearly. Okay. Because it's you that is on this chopping block. Okay. Am I clear yes. to you? Yes. And I don't want to hear, oh, all of a sudden I just think I'm going to refabricate all this. And, uh, well, I don't no. Know. What I want to hear is exactly what Ryan told you because that's what's going to keep you in a position to where you're not going to be the sole individual out here responsible for what happened to Kent. Okay. Okay? Yeah. I can't be any more clear to you than that. I understand. And you need to understand it. Okay. We're going to start back at the club. Whose idea was it to go get money because you wanted drinks, you want dope, whatever you I want. I wanted to go home. That was Ryan's idea. Ryan's uh, idea. And best of my knowledge, yes. I don't want to even hear whose idea, or best of my knowledge, whose idea was it? It was Ryan's idea. Ryan's idea. And what did he tell you? That we need some more money for drinks, and the sister wouldn't give us any more money. Okay. And he said, we're going to do what about it? We're going to rob somebody. You're going to rob somebody. And so that led up to you and him leaving together? And you went to where? We went to the Tribune building. Well, before that, you went where? We went to his car. To his car, which was parked where? Down whatever street that is, that by Georgia's office. Where we drove through earlier, you and I and the other two detectives, on, on First Street. It was parked alongside the street. When the officer is referencing them taking a trip earlier, three officers had driven Charlie to downtown Columbia to try and get him to show them where everything had happened. 
to corroborate his confession. But instead, Charlie told them that he couldn't remember where the murder had taken place. And so the officers ended up driving him to the parking lot and pointing out the exact spot where it had occurred. It was parked alongside the street. And you went there for what reason? To get something out of his car. Get know. something out of his car. To get a weapon out of his car. To get a weapon out of his car. Case, what we try to do. Whose idea out. was it to go to the car to get a weapon out of the car? It was his. His idea? Yes. And how did he articulate that to you? Basically that we're young, we're in high school, boy, it fucked up if we just go try to rob someone just regularly without anything. So you're young, you're afraid you get fucked up because you're not a big stature, and you wanted to go to the car to get something out of the car, a weapon. Yes. In order to do what with it? If it came down to it. If it came down to it. To beat someone with it. To beat someone with it. To possibly beat them to death. To death? Hopefully. Hopefully? Hopefully not, no. I mean, hopefully it wouldn't come to that. But you went there with the knowledge of getting a weapon, and it could come to that. And it did. And it did come to that. And who took the weapon out of the car? Out of the car? Yes. I don't know if I carried it from the car. I don't, I'm pretty sure that he took it out of the car, but I think that I carried it after that. He carried, he got it out of the car, apparently transferred it to you, and you carried it from the car to the Tribune building. Yeah. Charlie also tells the officer that he and Ryan went back into the club after murdering Kent, but that wasn't possible because by that time, the club was already closed. I asked Charlie about why he said it was Ryan's idea to rob Kent if he didn't remember. He says he remembers really wanting to go home that night while they were at By George. So from his train of thought, robbing Kent would have had to have been Ryan's idea and not his. I, I wanted to go home. So I, I highly doubt that I was like, hey, let's go rob somebody. You know, and I, 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 you know, thought if I was involved, then it was probably Ryan's idea to go rob somebody. Because if it would have been my idea to go rob somebody, he could have said, "No, listen, I'm going home, and I can take you home if you, you know, if you want me to." But I'm going home. He had the keys, and he drove, and he's, you know, said from the beginning that he took me home. Uh, so I, I tried to explain that to them, and they said, "Well, well, you know, Ryan's going to put it on you." if you don't say something and all that. And I try telling them, I don't know, or that's fine even. If Ryan's going to put it on me, that's fine. And I don't remember, and I don't know what happened. And the cops made me say that I was there and Ryan strangled this guy, even though they knew I didn't remember. There were many things in Charlie's statement to police that didn't make sense or didn't fit with the evidence. But even so, he was arrested and transported to the county jail. Meanwhile, Ryan Ferguson was driving home from class in Kansas City when he was pulled over by a swarm of police cars, demanding that he get out of the car. He did and was immediately placed into handcuffs and put in the back of a police car. He was told that he was under arrest and he had no idea what was going on, what he was being arrested for. He would later say that when he learned that it was for the murder of Kent Heitholtz, He felt a little bit of relief, thinking that it was just a misunderstanding and that it would be straightened out soon. But it wouldn't. Police interrogated him, and he continuously denied having anything to do with it, saying, you're trying to get me to admit to something that I didn't do. And although Charlie couldn't remember leaving the club that night, Ryan did. 
He told the police that he and Charlie had left by George after closing and that he had driven Charlie home and then went to bed. But the officers weren't letting up. They told him that Charlie had confessed to it and had implicated him in the murder too, saying that Charlie said they had robbed Kent to get more money for alcohol. Ryan continued to adamantly deny that any of it was true, but despite his denials, he too was charged with murder. A few months went by, and while Charlie was at the county jail, his attorney showed him some of the police reports that had been turned over to him. Reports that made Charlie think that what he was confessing to was right, and that he and Ryan really had been involved in the murder. In one of the police reports, it says that a girl named Megan Arthur, one of Ryan's friends, told detectives that she had a disturbing conversation with Ryan in October 2003. She said that Ryan told her that he and Charlie had done something stupid and that Charlie was trying to pull him into it and that Ryan didn't want to turn himself in. The report said that she also saw Ryan and Charlie at a New Year's Eve party and that Ryan and another friend went into a room to have a private conversation and that when they came out, the friend looked pretty upset. She told the detective that she believed that Ryan may have told her about the murder. She said the friend wouldn't tell anyone what they had talked about. The second police report involved Dallas Mallory, Charlie and Ryan's friend. The report states that Dallas told police that he saw Ryan and Charlie sometime after the murder had taken place and that Charlie told him that he had beat someone down. He said Charlie had something in his hand, but that he couldn't remember what. And if that wasn't enough, an inmate, Richard Walker, told Charlie that Ryan had told him that they had done it and that Ryan was planning on pinning it all on Charlie. Walker also gave a videotaped statement to the prosecutor, relaying what he said Ryan had told him. And finally, there was a report about one of the janitors, Jerry Trump, who said he could identify Charlie and Ryan as the two guys he had seen at the crime scene. Charlie looked at the reports, which reaffirmed his fears that they were, in fact, guilty. And that, coupled with the fact that he was told that Ryan was going to turn on him, made him decide to take the plea deal. You know, I got all that stuff, and uh, I was told they were going to testify against Ryan, and that's why I was so adamant at his trial, because I basically found, okay, all these people are supposed to be saying that either we were there or Ryan confessed to him. So I thought the only strategy he had was to put it on me, basically. And I was lying. I was lying to save my ass. The police knew I was lying. The prosecutor knew I was lying. My lawyer knew I was lying. But, uh, you know, it made their case. They didn't care. It was a two-year-old case. It was easier for me to lie about stuff. They didn't have any evidence. And um, I felt like I had to lie to save my life. You know, I felt like if I didn't say that Ryan strangled this guy, he was going to say that I did it. Right. At that point, did did a little part of you think that it might have been true? Like when you're like looking at oh, all these yeah. statements I mean, and stuff. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I thought we did it. Right. I did. You know what I mean? And I I was I was lying. I I couldn't remember if we did do it. I couldn't remember anything. You right. know. Uh, and I was lying, and I knew I was lying, and I was lying to save my life because I thought we did it, and I thought he was going to put it on me if I didn't put it on him. And eventually, I regretted doing that. Right. I knew I was lying. So Charlie decided to testify against Ryan even though he still didn't have a memory of what had exactly happened that night. 
how did they prep you to testify against Ryan? Like, I know that there was the initial interrogation. You signed, obviously, the plea. Did they meet with you beforehand and say, this is what we want you to say? Or they, like, interview yeah, you? Or yeah, how did they, that work? They, I, I had to go down to the prosecutor's office probably, like, five or six times um, without my lawyer. And they would, you know, t- you know tell me, for instance... I remember the assistant prosecutor, Dan Knight, I had this habit, especially when you're in the hole, you have this habit of following up every sentence with, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. sort of to make sure that it, the person you're talking to heard you. And I remember he said, is that a jail thing? Because we don't know what you're saying. So stop asking us if we know what you're saying. And they would say, you know, don't don't write things down. The prosecutor didn't like me to write things down because then I couldn't change things and it made things difficult. Um I, you know, I was lying, and so I was sitting there, and I was trying to come up with a feasible lie, and then sometimes I'd be like, okay, that's not that's not really feasible, and I should probably change my story. And my lawyer would tell me, well, the more you change your story, the less valuable it is in terms of a plea agreement, and they don't want you to change your story. And when I was, one time I was in there with the prosecutor, you know, by himself, and he said to me, uh, I know that your lawyer helped you come up with your story. And he didn't really even wait for me to respond. It was sort of just a rhetorical question. Like he wanted me to know that he was smart enough to know that I was lying. I think it was evident that I was lying. I mean, they knew that I was scared and that I thought I'd been involved in something. And, you know, they knew that I was basically lying because I didn't know whether I'd killed this guy or not. I didn't know who had killed this guy or not. And I didn't want to be the guy that was blamed for killing this person. And... It's a big ledge to step over to say, you know, I might have been involved in a murder, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's really hard to say, okay, I might have, I might have been the one that killed this guy. And I tried telling them that. I tried saying, you know, I might have been the one that killed this guy. There, two of us were there. I don't know. And they wouldn't let me say that. Right. They wouldn't let me say it. You know, Ryan is saying we didn't do it. So he, they had to get me to implicate him in order to charge both of us because there were two white kids that were seen at the murder scene. We'll get to Ryan's trial right after this quick break. I'm excited to announce that Court Junkie now has an online store where you can get a comfy t-shirt or hoodie to wear while you're listening to your favorite podcast, which is hopefully this one. But not only can you get cool stuff to wear, you can also get Court Junkie notebooks or phone cases just go to courtjunkie.com slash store to check it out. That's courtjunkie.com slash store. And now, back to the show. Ryan's trial started on October 17th, 2005. And interestingly enough, three of the witnesses whose statements had been in those police reports that Charlie had seen were not called to testify. Not Dallas Mallory, who said he had seen Charlie after the murder. Not Megan Arthur, who said Ryan had essentially confessed to her. And not Richard Walker, the inmate who said that Ryan had confessed to him. But we'll get back to them a little later. Instead, the prosecution's main witnesses were Charlie himself and the two janitors who had seen the two white males in the parking lot by Kent's car that night, Shauna Ornt and Jerry Trump. Boone County Prosecutor Kevin Crane told the jury in his opening statements that the evidence would show that Charlie struck Kent in the head with a tire tool and that Ryan then strangled him to death. Their motive? 
because Ryan wanted to rob someone for money so they could buy more drinks. He told the jury that Charlie had pleaded guilty to murder in the second degree, robbery, acting in concert with Ryan Ferguson to commit that robbery, and a crime called armed criminal action. He said Charlie pled guilty for his part in the crime. He said after the janitors called 911, two of Kent's co-workers, who were still inside the building, ran outside to help. They rolled Kent over onto his back and checked for a pulse, but couldn't find one. He said Kent's wristwatch and car keys were missing and have never been found. His wallet and all of its contents, however, were found inside the vehicle. Crane admitted that no forensic evidence at the scene could be tied to either Charlie or Ryan. He said, I'll tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, over the course of this investigation, no fingerprints, blood, DNA, or hair at the scene have been identified as the defendant's or Charlie Erickson's. He also addressed Charlie's memory, saying, the evidence will be that Charlie Erickson would not consciously think about what he and Ryan Ferguson had done for two years. He put the horrible things they'd done out of his conscious memory until he saw that newspaper article two years later. He said after he testifies, Charlie will be sentenced to 25 years in prison, and after presenting all of his evidence, he will ask the jury to find Ryan guilty, too. Ryan's defense attorney, Charlie Rogers, said in his opening statements that Kent's brutal murder was no doubt tragic, but that the fingerprints found at the scene didn't belong to Kent, Ryan, or Charlie. He also said that a canine was brought into the scene to see if they could track the scents of the killer. And he said the dog was able to track the scent for a few blocks and then lost it in front of a student housing building for the University of Missouri. He said officers used luminol at the scene and found bloody footwear impressions, but they weren't able to be connected with either Ryan or Charlie. He said several hairs were found in Kent's hand, most of which were found to be Kent's, all except one. Mitochondrial DNA was tested on that hair, and the hair was not a match for Kent, Ryan, or Charlie. He also brought up the timeline and said, By George, like all other bars and clubs in Columbia, closes at 1.30 a.m. He said Ryan took Charlie home afterwards and then went home to his own house. There was a series of phone calls that Ryan made to a friend named Holly that went from 1.40 a.m. until after 2 a.m. He said Ryan didn't go to school that next day, but unfortunately, that wasn't that unusual for Ryan to miss school. He then addressed Charlie's testimony and said that Charlie had a dream that combined different elements from waking reality. He said one of those elements was the fact that Charlie and Ryan were together on Halloween. Another one was the news media and everything that Charlie had been reading and hearing about the murder. He said Charlie has obsessive-compulsive disorder and can't stop obsessing about this dream. He said that shortly after the New Year's Eve party, where Charlie asked Ryan if they were involved, someone had overheard that conversation and called the police to report it. Then, coincidentally, Rogers said, Ryan's car was broken into. And when Ryan reported that to the police, they told him that he needed to come in and give fingerprints so they could investigate the theft from his car. 
But actually, he said, police wanted Ryan's fingerprints so they could compare them to the prints found at the murder scene. He said that they did get Ryan's prints and that they did compare them. No match, like so many other suspects they excluded for that very reason. He said a couple months later is when police received another tip about Charlie, saying he thought that he and Ryan may have been involved. He said the police then picked up Charlie and interviewed him four times, and he talked about how inconsistent Charlie's story was and how he continuously said how he may have been making it all up in his head. Rogers pointed out another inconsistency in Charlie's testimony. Charlie saying that after the murder, he goes one way, when the janitors and the tracking dog say the killer went the opposite way. He said Charlie's memory of seeing his friend, Dallas Mallory, after the murder in a police uniform had actually occurred prior to the murder at the Halloween party Charlie had been at that had been broken up by the cops. Dallas had been dressed as a cop there, and Charlie was confusing that memory. He talked about how Charlie's attorney had shown him the police reports and how six months later, Charlie agreed to a plea deal, now saying that he remembers. He said, You will see from the evidence that Charles Erickson, when he was questioned by the police, wanted to be reassured that it was just a dream and that he really didn't do anything. But instead, you will see him be berated, coerced, cajoled, and taught what the police wanted him to say. And then you'll see the differences between what he claimed to remember then and what he claims to remember now. It is not the truth. When Prosecutor Crane called Charlie to the stand, one of the first questions he asked was, Mr. Erickson, on the early morning of November 1st, 2001, what did you do to Kent Heitholtz? Charlie responded, I robbed him and I beat him with a tire tool. And what did the defendant in this case, Ryan Ferguson, do to him? Charlie responded, he robbed him and he strangled him. He then pointed at Ryan in court. He said that while he and Ryan were at the club, they ran out of money and so they left. They were sitting in Ryan's car when Ryan said that if they got more money, they would be able to drink more. And so Ryan proposed that they rob someone for money. Charlie's testimony at Ryan's trial was now extremely detailed. He was able to recall exactly what he was thinking and why they made the decisions they did. He said Ryan took a tire tool out of his trunk, and they were walking when they spotted Kent in the Tribune parking lot. He said, I stepped over the wall, and I walked quickly, and I hit him with the tire tool. I crept up behind him, and as I crept up behind him, he started to turn. That's when I hit him, and I kept hitting him. He said there was blood everywhere, including blood on himself. He demonstrated how he had hit Kent and said that after he was done, he walked away and sat down, thinking that he was going to be sick. He said he then saw Ryan standing over Kent and strangling him. He said he took the belt from the crime scene and that Ryan said he had taken the tire tool, but that he didn't see it. They then walked to a creek and he washed the blood off of his hands. He said they then ran into Dallas Mallory afterwards as he was stopped at an intersection, and that he told him what they had just done. He noted that there were a couple girls in the car, too. He said they then went back to Ryan's car, put some things in a plastic bag, and put their coats on, 
They then went back inside the club, which he said was still open and still serving drinks. He said Ryan got himself a couple drinks and got him one, but that he didn't feel like drinking. When asked how they could have gotten more drinks when they had run out of money before, Charlie said that Ryan had found a $20 bill in his pocket and that he had smiled and remarked how they did that for nothing. Prosecutor Crane asked about closing time, which was 1.30, and how they would have gotten back inside after Kent's murder, which would have been between 2 a.m. and 2.30. But Charlie was insistent that although closing was at 1.30, they were there. Two days after the murder, he said that Ryan came over and picked him up to drive him to school. He grabbed a newspaper and opened it while they were in the car. Kent's murder was on the front page. He said that he said to Ryan, that's messed up that it happened two blocks away from where we were partying the other night. Prosecutor Crane asked him what happened to his memory then, and Charlie said he had put it out of his mind. He said that later, when the memories started coming back to him, he wished that they were just a dream, but that it wasn't. Why did you plead guilty? Crane asked. Because I am guilty, Charlie responded. Asked what his level of certainty was, Charlie said, I am 100% certain that me and Ryan Ferguson committed this crime. On cross-examination, Ryan's attorney brought up how Charlie had told everyone that he wasn't sure if he had committed the murder or whether it was just a dream, but that now he's confident in his memory. He brought up the inconsistencies in Charlie's statement to police and played the interrogation tapes to the court. Ryan's attorney implied that Charlie was crafting his story now after seeing the evidence in the case. Charlie said he wouldn't deny that he studied all of the evidence and that he even had the records and reports physically with him for months while he was in jail, but he insisted that he wasn't lying now. Shauna Orntz, one of the two janitors who called 911 that night, took the stand. She described how she saw the two white males in the parking lot and how one of them looked at her and said, someone's hurt, get help. The one she saw clearly had dirty blonde hair, skinny, about six feet tall, and looked to be in his early 20s. She said Jerry Trump, the other janitor, went with her to the sketch artist, although he didn't get a good look at them. She did. Jerry Trump's testimony was a bit more explosive because it was different than what he had initially told the police. Now, he was claiming that he could make a positive ID. He said that after the murder, he was incarcerated from December 2001 until December 2004 for an unrelated offense. He said that after he was released, he was contacted by the prosecutor's office about this case. He said that he told the prosecutor that while he was incarcerated, he had received a newspaper article that his wife had sent to him about someone confessing to Kent's murder. He said that before even reading the headlines, his mouth dropped open when he saw Ryan in Charlie's mugshots. He said he remembered seeing them by Kent's car and that he was sure of it. When asked if he could point one of them out in the courtroom, Jerry said yes, and pointed directly at Ryan. The defense's case was focused on the fact that there was no evidence at the scene that tied Ryan or Charlie to the murder, and they also focused on the timeline. Charlie had testified that they had gone back to buy George after they killed Kent, but the defense presented witnesses who all said the club closed at 1.30 that night. 
but their attempts to show reasonable doubt weren't enough. Ryan was found guilty. Before his sentencing, Ryan spoke to the court and said, I really just wanted to say that today is a sad day because the justice system has failed, not only my family and I, but the Heitholtz and the community. It has failed because they're sending an innocent man to jail, because they're letting a horrible person run free without a care. They don't have to worry about the police looking for them. I can't understand that. I don't see how Prosecutor Crane can live with himself with that. But someday, the truth will come out, and everyone will see that I am innocent, and I will be free. And that will be a great day, because on that day, the justice system will finally have done justice. Ryan was sentenced to 40 years in prison. But as it's been well documented, Ryan's family wasn't about to give up. And with a little investigating of their own, the entire case against not only Ryan, but Charlie as well, would fall apart. Ryan's release from prison was a long time in the making. After his failed appeals in 2009, Ryan got a new lawyer, a high-profile attorney from Chicago named Kathleen Zellner. And if you've listened to my episodes about the Melissa Kaluzinski case, you might recognize that name. Kathleen represents Melissa, too. Kathleen took the case pro bono, but she openly admitted to 48 Hours that she wasn't confident that she could turn the case around. She said that once you've been convicted, the system works completely against you. Just a few months after Kathleen took on the case, in November 2009, Charlie sent Ryan a letter. The letter, in part, read, Have your lawyers come speak to me the next time they're down here. So Kathleen went to see Charlie. He said he didn't want his attorney present, and he had a prepared statement that he read out loud. In his statement, he absolved Ryan of any involvement in Kent's murder, and instead said that he alone was the sole perpetrator. He said he beat Kent until he was on the ground, and then he took his belt off and strangled him with it. He said Ryan was just a witness and even tried to stop him. He said he lied about Ryan's involvement in order to save himself. However, Charlie still put Ryan at the scene, something Ryan said was absolutely not true, that neither he nor Charlie were there that night. And this new version still didn't fit with the evidence at the scene. But still, Ryan's defense team knew that Charlie's revised statement could potentially win Ryan a new trial. And in addition to Charlie's statement, some other witnesses had new stories to tell too. Shauna Ornt, the janitor who had come up with the sketch of one of the two men she had seen that night, said that neither Charlie nor Ryan were the guys she had seen. In fact, she said she had told Prosecutor Crane this before trial. And at trial, he never once asked her, point blank, if Ryan or Charlie were who she had seen. And then there was Jerry Trump, who had pointed out Ryan at trial, saying that he could identify him as one of the two males he saw. But now, Jerry was recanting his story too, saying that he straight up lied at Ryan's trial. He said that Prosecutor Crane had been the one to come up with the idea to say he saw their mugshots in the newspaper and that it had jogged his memory. He said the truth was he couldn't identify the two men they saw that night. He said he felt very intimidated by the prosecutor and that he was just trying to stay out of trouble. 
A friend of Ryan and Charlie's named Kim Bennett submitted a statement too, saying that she had seen Charlie and Ryan at By George that night and that she witnessed them get into Ryan's car and drive away at about 1.30. And not only that, but Kathleen said the prosecution's theory at trial didn't even make sense. Kent's wallet hadn't been taken, and the club had already closed, so the robbery scenario didn't fit. She also hired a forensic pathologist who said that Charlie's story of having hit Kent with a tire tool didn't match the evidence either. He said a tire tool would have left skull fractures, but that Kent didn't have any. I talked to Charlie about his taking sole credit for the murder. You know, I took the responsibility for this murder to try to help Ryan because I felt bad. You know, I thought that we were involved. I thought that we'd been involved, but I knew that I was lying. I knew that I lied and that he was convicted because of that. And I couldn't really, you know, justify trading his life for mine anymore. And I thought the only way that I could help him, though, was to just say I'd done everything and that he didn't know what I was going to do because Jerry Trump put us at this murder scene. And I didn't think that, you know, I thought we did. And I didn't think that you could get around that. And then it was like after I took the weight for this murder that I didn't do to try to help Ryan, all these people recanted. So armed with the witness recantations and new expert testimony, Kathleen took it to an appeals court, and in 2012, she presented the new evidence in front of a new judge. She called witness after witness to the stand, slowly dismantling the case that had been made against Ryan at his trial. She even called M. Boyd to the stand, the last known person to see Kent alive, who confirmed that police never investigated him. And an investigator for the prosecution took the stand and said that he tried to confirm Jerry Trump's story about his wife having sent him the newspaper while he was in prison. He said he spoke with Jerry's wife, and she said she didn't remember ever sending him any newspaper articles, something that the prosecution never shared with Ryan's defense. Kathleen said that had they shared that information, they could have used it to impeach Jerry Trump's testimony. And then... Charlie took the stand again, and this time he said he actually didn't have any memory of what happened that night after leaving the club, and that he never did. Ryan's defense team anxiously awaited the judge's decision, but it would be another blow. The judge wrote in his ruling that he didn't find Charlie or Jerry Trump's testimony to be credible, and he upheld Ryan's conviction. But the case didn't end there. In September 2013, Kathleen took the case to a Missouri appellate court in front of three judges. There is no evidence left in this case, she told them. And then, two months later, on November 5th, 2013, the judges unanimously ruled that Ryan didn't get a fair trial, and they threw out his conviction. In the ruling, the judges wrote, We are aware that by vacating Ferguson's criminal conviction, we have erased any measure of comfort that Mr. Heitholt's family and friends may have drawn from the belief that a person responsible for his senseless and brutal murder has been brought to justice. As our opinion indicates, however, Ferguson's conviction is not a verdict worthy of either judicial or public confidence. The ruling concludes that the state withheld evidence from the defense which is considered a Brady violation. This was in reference to the interview with Jerry Trump's wife, who said she could not recall ever sending a newspaper article to her husband while he was incarcerated. 
but they also included some scathing remarks about the state's case as well. They wrote that the state's evidence in support of its theory was limited to just Charles Erickson's confession and to an eyewitness identification of Erickson and Ferguson provided by Trump. And now, both of those witnesses had recanted. Charlie no longer believes that he and Ryan had anything to do with Kent's murder. After seeing the witnesses recant, and after one of his attorneys went over the forensic evidence with him, he said it eased his fears. When did you, like, so when did you start to truly believe that you were innocent? Uh, probably when Laura O'Sullivan came down and, you know, explained to me, well, these aren't your bloody fingerprints, and they're not Ryan's bloody fingerprints, and they're not the victim's bloody fingerprints. And they had comparison prints for all these other people, and probably a medic would have had uh, gloves on. That was when I was said, okay, you know, um, when I... When it was explained to me that all those people had recanted, and uh, when Laura came down and, and she explained that to me, then that, that's, I mean, that's definitive. I mean, it was a gruesome scene. And just sort of like looking back on it with clarity and, you know, um, sobriety over the years, realizing that there was no evidence from us that was you found, you know. So mm-hmm. I didn't wake up with blood on me, you know what I mean? For two years, Ryan and I never talked about that night. I was never worried about that night. He never said, hey, by the way, don't talk to anybody about that guy we killed. Right. You know? So um, just sort of in hindsight, uh, being less anxious, being less worried about all these other sort of irrelevant, what would come to be irrelevant things. Um, right. How did you... It's been a... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just, it's been a trip. You know, it's been hard. And uh, it has definitely been a really, really weird experience. <laughs> it's been, it's been, it's been so weird. Like especially like when, like you, you know, like Ryan's on TV and you see, you know, and then like it's just, oh, it's weird. Ryan has been free now for almost four years, but Charlie is still in prison. In fact, his appeal hasn't even been filed yet due to attorney issues. But now, an attorney from the Midwest Innocence Project has taken on his case, and she's supposed to be filing his appeal later this year. Just a couple weeks ago, Charlie gave me an update. I actually just talked to my lawyer um, Sunday, and I got done uh, having meetings with a forensic, or not a forensic, he's a psychologist, and he, one of his, the things that he looks at are false confessions. And, I found out on Sunday that you know he thinks I'm innocent. He's going to write uh, a report that's beneficial to me, and uh, so that that made me feel good. And she told me that she is going to he, he should have his report written in the next like two or three months, and that she thinks she should be able to have something ready to be filed in court within a month after that. And so I'm hope yeah I'm hoping. <laughs> I keep being told that something's going to be filed, but I'm actually hoping that something is filed. And in addition to Charlie still being in prison, we still don't know what happened that Halloween night in 2001. And if Ryan and Charlie didn't kill Kent, then who did? A clue, or at the very least, a lead, might be in the lawsuit that Ryan currently has pending against the former prosecutor, the city of Columbia, and numerous law enforcement officers involved in his case. 
In the filing, some bombshell accusations are made, some that may shed light on what went wrong in the Kent Heitholt murder investigation. The lawsuit accuses investigators of focusing on the two white males that were at the scene and not investigating anyone else, particularly M. Boyd, the last known person to see Kent Heitholt alive. And I want to be careful here and tell you why I'm not using Boyd's full name. That's because, at the most, this lawsuit lays out some pretty interesting and possibly damning evidence against him, and at the very least, demonstrates why he should have been more thoroughly investigated. But I'm not an investigator, and I firmly believe in innocence until proven guilty, so I don't want to repeat allegations or cause people to start investigating Boyd. Just like how Ryan and Charlie have likely been wrongfully convicted, I wouldn't want that to happen again. So please keep that in mind while I go over some of these points in the lawsuit. One of the claims in the lawsuit says that items found at the scene can be linked to Boyd. Numerous papers were found around and under Kent's car. The papers included a Hickman High School girls' basketball schedule and a number of Columbia College basketball programs and schedules. Kent didn't cover these games, but Boyd did. On the night of the murder, the lawsuit claims that Kent was not seen carrying any loose papers. Boyd also gave conflicting statements to police shortly after the murder. In one interview, Boyd said he left the Tribune shortly after 2 a.m., and was talking to a janitor for about five to 10 minutes outside the entrance to the building when he saw Kent exiting. He said he then spoke with Kent as both of them stood next to Kent's car. He said he left the Tribune at 2.20 a.m. and didn't see anyone around the parking lot or anyone who looked suspicious. In the second interview, Boyd said he left the Tribune building at 2.10 a.m., and got in his car and started adjusting the radio. He said after a couple minutes, he saw Kent exit the building. He said he started his car, backed out of his parking space, and stopped by Kent's car. He said he rolled down his driver's side window and spoke to Kent while sitting in his car. And then in a third account with the defense investigator, Boyd said he left the Tribune building, got into his vehicle, listened to a cassette tape, and then saw Kent exiting the building. He said he drove his car over to him and spoke to him through the passenger side window. He then said he saw Kent get into his car, back up, and start to pull out of the parking lot. He had told the defense investigator that he had been driving his blue car that night, but told the detective that he had been driving his wife's red car. Boyd also reportedly made statements that when he got home that night, he immediately washed his clothes and put on a long-sleeved sweatshirt. Another claim in the lawsuit is that Boyd allegedly had a dispute with Kent shortly before the murder regarding a major mistake he had made on an assignment from Kent. Boyd also didn't fill out a timesheet indicating when he left work that night, even though he was required to do so. And according to the lawsuit, Boyd actually returned to the crime scene after the murder, and never told any police officers about it. Boyd can be seen in a crime scene photograph, peering out from behind a door towards the location where Kent's body was found. Boyd has stated that he went back to the Tribune at about 4.15 or 4.30 a.m., and that when he arrived, 
Kent was lying face down. The lawsuit states, this is impossible, as Heitholt's body was turned face up when he was discovered by the other Tribune employees at approximately 2.25 a.m. The only other individual that knew how Heitholt's body was originally positioned is the killer. Boyd also stated that he saw paramedics when he arrived back at the scene, but those paramedics were long gone by 4.15 a.m. Boyd had initially told detectives that he hadn't seen anyone suspicious that night, but months after the murder, after reportedly learning that police were looking for two white males, Boyd went to the police department and told the detective that he had seen two individuals walking casually down an alley. The lawsuit states that the defendant officers never made any effort to locate or process either of Boyd's vehicles and that they never requested DNA or fingerprints from him to compare to the crime scene. And some other interesting things from the lawsuit. Remember those three police reports that Charlie had seen while he was in jail? The ones he says really made him think that he and Ryan were guilty? And remember how I told you that none of the witnesses in them were called to testify at Ryan's trial? Well, Ryan's team thinks that there may have been a reason for that. Ryan's lawsuit calls those police reports fabricated and says that Dallas Mallory and Megan Arthur both did give interviews, but that police either coerced or twisted their words. Ryan's attorneys had hired a former law enforcement officer, Jim Miller, to conduct an investigation into Ryan's case. Miller submitted an affidavit that included a recorded interview he did with Megan Arthur. He showed Megan the police report that stated that she had said that she had a disturbing conversation with Ryan in October 2003, where he told her that Charlie was trying to get them to turn themselves in and that he and Charlie had done something stupid. According to the affidavit, Megan read the report and stated, I mean, how much do they change these? Is this, like, normal that they change things like this? She said she never told police that Ryan told her that he and Charlie had done something stupid together. Instead, she said she told them that Ryan had told her that Charlie was trying to tell him that they had done something stupid and that Ryan was confused about it and didn't know what Charlie was talking about. She said the report was very dramatized. Jim Miller also interviewed Dallas Mallory and showed him the police reports that contained his interview with police. Dallas submitted an affidavit that said that when he was interviewed by police officers, they yelled at him and called him a liar when he said that he hadn't seen Charlie downtown the night of Kent's murder. He said they threatened to charge him with murder if he didn't tell them the truth. He said he continually told them that he was telling the truth. He said they told him that Charlie said that he had seen him in a police officer's uniform, and he said that he must have been talking about the Halloween party from earlier that night. He said, During this interview, I was very scared and became emotional as the police continued yelling, calling me a liar, and threatening to charge me with murder. He said he never told police that he saw Charlie that night downtown, never said that Charlie told him that we beat someone down, and never said that he was carrying something. He said that in his second interview with police, he said whatever police wanted him to say because he was scared. He wrote, On the date of this interview still, I get nervous and scared just thinking about it. And remember Richard Walker, 
the inmate who told Charlie that Ryan had told him that he was going to try and pin it on Charlie. Ryan's lawsuit says that Jim Miller also interviewed Richard Walker and that Richard also said that Ryan never confessed or admitted any involvement in the murder. In fact, he said Ryan had told him that he was innocent and that his friend was ate up on drugs and was trying to set him up, but that his friend didn't even know what he was doing because it didn't make any sense. He said the police were either trying to use my words in a different way than I said them, or they told me what to say. In response, the attorney for the officers said that since neither Dallas Mallory nor Megan Arthur were called to the stand at Ryan's trial, Ryan could not claim that those reports violated his civil rights. They wrote, The law is clear that the allegedly fabricated evidence, in this case, the Mallory and Arthur reports, must have been introduced at his trial. They were not. Thus, there was no constitutional violation. Ryan's lawsuit, which is asking for $100 million, is still pending. However, the former prosecutor, who is now a judge, and some others were dismissed from it. The suit against six officers remains. While Charlie does get a lot of support, he told me that he also gets a lot of negative attention from people who say that even though they believe he's innocent, that he deserves to be locked up for lying. Charlie told me that it's important to him that people know the circumstances and why he did what he did, that he truly thought they may have been guilty, that he thought Ryan had confessed to it and was going to pin it on him, that he thought he had no other choice. I think it's kind of lame for me to, or sort of like it's like the boy who cried wolf to ask people to believe I'm innocent, you know, and to complain. And and just because I've said so many things, and so I don't really like ask people to do that. I'm not really much of a whiner. You know, I feel like my, you know, I feel like I, I, I should, um, have a right to, to talk about, you know, how I've been screwed over and things like that. And I sort of just ask people to look at my case and make up, uh, their mind on their own. I don't ask people, you know, to like, to believe that I'm innocent. I, I think it's just, I can't even ask really my family that after everything I've said. So I just sort of ask people to look at the case and I try not to, you know, convince people. I, I really don't, it sounds bad to say like, I really don't care, but it's like, like I, I could get out and I'm going to make it whether people think I'm innocent or not. You know, I'm going to get a job or do whatever I have to do. I'm not, I'm not really got caught up on that. In hindsight, if he had to do it all again, what would he do differently? He said he can't help but think of how things would have been different had he gone into that interrogation room with an attorney. Yeah, I, I had talked to my mom about talking to a psychologist before I was arrested, and I wish I would have done that. I, my dad was a lawyer. You know, I should have asked for a lawyer when I was in there. If I would have asked for a lawyer, I wouldn't be sitting here. Ryan wouldn't have done 10 years. And I should have done it. You know, I was trying to do what I thought was the right thing. And, this call is from a correctional facility and may be monitored and recorded. Uh, you know, I definitely should have just asked for an attorney, and uh, I shouldn't—I shouldn't have been worried about some night that I remember, you know, that I couldn't remember. I shouldn't have been making convenient assumptions out of fear, and uh, it just sort of snowballed. I'd never really been in that situation before, and it is what it is. You know, we can't go back and change what we've done and, and the choices we make. All we can do is really learn from them, and so. I've definitely tried to learn from my mistakes. I've definitely tried to do that. And uh, I'm just sort of doing all that I can um, 
to just to be you know a productive person, do do all that I can for myself, and uh, hope that I can bring you know more joy to the world than pain. In the end, I think that's probably most important. Charlie told me the people he feels most sorry for, however, are Kent's family. After Ryan's release, Columbia police declared the case into Kent's murder an active and ongoing investigation. But so far, no other arrests have been made. As for Charlie, he will be getting out of prison, whether it's through his appeals process or from just having served out his sentence. So I asked him what all those reporters asked Ryan three years ago when he was released. What is the first thing you'd like to do when you get out? Just see my family and really just, you know, live a normal life. I'm really looking forward to having my own apartment after going through cellmate after cellmate after cellmate in what is essentially a broom closet. That's something that I'm looking forward to. Just uh, if I haven't finished school yet, I'm going to finish school and just do whatever job I can get. I don't care. I'll clean toilets and just be able to just live a normal life and really do all the things that I took for granted before. Just making my own food, having a girlfriend, my family. That, that's something that I really took for granted before. I partied a lot and didn't spend a lot of time with my family. And, you know, every family has issues and things like that. And we've really grown stronger uh, through all this. And it's been hard. You know, it's been really, really hard on me. It's been really hard on my family. And uh, so I just, I'm looking forward to being able to be there for them, especially because my parents are retired. And they've helped me through this a lot. And I owe them a lot. And, and so that's it, just being with my family and living a normal life. Unfortunately, in wrongful conviction cases, there are literally no winners. Everybody loses. Not only is someone incarcerated at times for years upon years when they did nothing wrong, but the victims' families have to relive the pain of losing their loved ones over and over again. At the trials, at the hearings, the appeals, the post-conviction hearings, it's a long, arduous process. And then, When a conviction is vacated, the families lose any type of conclusion in the case. They lose any sort of comfort they may have felt, thinking that justice had at least been served. And that's truly heartbreaking. That's all for today's episode. Thank you to Charlie Erickson for sharing his story with me, and to Charlie's mom for putting me in touch with him. To keep up to date on Charlie's case, you can visit freecharleserickson.com or visit their Facebook page, where Charlie's mom regularly updates about the case. You can find the page at facebook.com slash freecharleserickson. And if you're interested in wrongful conviction cases, my friend Brooke Giddings from the Actual Innocence podcast has a brand new podcast out that's currently in the top 10 on the American iTunes charts. It's called Convicted, and it covers the case of Richard Nicholas, who is convicted of murdering his two-year-old daughter. Brooke does a lot of legwork in this one, including visiting Richard in prison, so be sure to check that out. And if you want to discuss this case or any others with some other court junkies, please consider joining my Facebook discussion group at courtjunkie.com Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter at courtjunkiepod and on Instagram at courtjunkie. To support this podcast, please consider checking out our sponsors, and you can also donate as little as a dollar a month and get access to early ad-free episodes by
by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtjunkie. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.